But now it's time to open Channel D. Yes, it's a long time since we've had Daniel Mumby on the show. Good afternoon, Daniel. How are you? I'm not too bad, thank you, Richard. How are you? Uh, all right. Yes, uh, enjoying a nice sunny bank holiday weekend. I Excellent. suspect slightly unlike you. Well, it's not too bad down here. It's a nice cool breeze, but very much overcast, so we're staying indoors for the time yes. being. So welcome to the hot and sunny north. <laughs> uh, like I never left. Yes. Anyway, we've... Usual stuff, we're going to talk about what's going on in the local screens, then we'll have a canter through the top ten, um, and then a few of the new releases, and it looks a bit like the good, the bad, and the ugly on the new releases. Yeah, more so on the bad, I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, um, it's, it's that kind of period of the, yeah. of the summer when um, the studios are trying to get rid of all the films that they couldn't sell for the, uh, the early and mid-July audiences, so uh, there's a few turkeys yeah. around, but I'm sure we'll find something yeah. to recommend. Okay, we'll start with the Annick Playhouse, and what we're going to do is just skip over those that are in the top ten, because you no doubt you'll say more about those when we get to them. Um, but we'll talk a little bit more about those that aren't in the top ten at the moment. So Annick Playhouse, uh, Tuesday coming, two o'clock in the afternoon, Inside Out, that's in the top ten. Uh, Friday evening at 7.30, Mission Possible, Rogue Nation, also in the top ten. Next Saturday at half past seven is going to be True Story. Which is pretty anemic. I mean, if you've seen either Capote or Manhunter, which was later remade as Red Dragon, you'll be pretty familiar with the whole thing of detectives or journalists trying to understand serial killers through close contact with them. I mean, I like Jonah Hill when he's trying to be serious, but I've always found James Franco creepy in the wrong way. You know, he has this kind of weird quality about him which never allows me to invest with his performances. So my advice is dig out your old um, Hannibal Lecter box set and go to that instead. <laughs> the following Wednesday, the 9th of September, 7.30, it's going to be Southpaw, Certificate 15. Yeah, which is the latest from Antoine Fuqua, who uh, directed Training Day, for which Denzel Washington won his Oscar, and it's from one of the screeners of the Sons of Anarchy TV series. Uh, story follows Jake Gyllenhaal, who's a successful boxer whose manager dies, and he has to build his career up again. I mean, on the one hand, Jane Gyllenhaal's a very fine actor. If you've never seen him in Source Code, go and watch that. And no, he does seem to have the whole raging bull physical transformation down pat here. The problem is, it's not raging bull. I mean, Fuqua's a very decent nuts and bolts director, but if you've seen any of the Rocky films, you will feel in very well-worn territory within about 20 minutes in. So my advice is either go and watch Raging Bull, if you haven't already, or go and watch what I was re-watching the other day, which is Michael Mann's Ali with uh, Will Smith, and which is all about the rumble in the jungle and is very, very good. Great. Uh, Friday the 11th is going to be The Man from UNCLE, which um, I'm off to see, so we'll come to that in the top 10. And then a week on Saturday the 12th at 7.30, it's Ricky and the Flash. Yes, this is interesting. It's the latest from Jonathan Demme, you know, bringing it back to Hannibal, because, of course, he did The Science of the Lambs and also Philadelphia and, more recently, Rachel Getting Married. Uh, written by Diablo Cody, who is the screenwriter of Juno and Jennifer's Body and, most recently, Young Adult. So a very promising lineup. Um, the story is uh, you've got Meryl Streep um, continuing to sort of defy age and expectations as Ricky, who's a rock star, and she returns home to set things right with her family, and uh, Kevin Kline also has a supporting role, which is good because Kevin Kline's a very interesting actor. It's very much a companion piece to Rachel Getting Married in that that was a film which had Anne Hathaway in an Oscar-nominated role where she was returning from drug rehabilitation and goes back to the family home to see her sister's wedding and old tensions bubble to the surface and they have to sort of work it out. So if you were a fan of that, and I thought it was you know, pretty interesting, um, it's basically the same kind of thing but with slightly more hip, self-conscious dialogue courtesy of Cody, and I think it's actually a very nice piece of work. 
Great, so the Playhouse box office number is Anik510785. To the Maltings in Berwick and loads of showings. Uh, next Saturday at 2.30 and 7.30. The Saturday after at 2.30 for the Fantastic Four Certificate 12A. Which I'm afraid is anything but fantastic. The best review I've ever heard of this was from a Spanish critic called Mario P. Shekekli, I think that's how you pronounce it, who said that the whole film feels like a trailer for a sequel that will never happen. I mean, if you remember the, the earlier Fantastic Four films from the mid-noughties, the ones with Jessica Alba in it, they were very shiny and safe and PG certificate. You know, I've never found the Fantastic Four the most interesting comic book characters anyway. And in this time, you've got Jamie Bell playing the thing, which is, okay, good piece of casting. You know, we saw from things like The Eagle that Jamie Bell was a lot more to him than just ballet dancing. The problem is the rest of the film is very generic. The special effects aren't impressive, and the dialogue is pretty poor. So I think it's one to avoid. Right, on to Tuesday evening, the 8th of September, Legend of Barney Thompson. Which is the debut for Robert Carlyle. And it's interesting because we are approaching very much the 20th anniversary of train spotting. So there'll be, a, I dare say, a lot more of him on screen in the future. Um, the, uh, so the story is you've got a, a barber called Barney Thompson in the Glasgow uh, region of Scotland who's very mediocre. In a fit of pique, he stumbles into becoming a serial murderer and has to go on the run from the police. So you don't need me to sort of mention it almost, but there are obvious hints to Sweeney Todd. It's not up there with the Tim Burton version. The other thing it reminded me of is that um, that Monty Python sketch before the Lumberjack song where you've got Michael Palin as the frustrated barber with the suit covered in blood and sort of saying, oh, blood's blood, i murder. <laughs> so it reminded me very much of that. It's not a great piece of work. You know, it, it does kind of subscribe to the notion that actors aren't really good directors. But it is good to see Carlisle back on screen in a leading role, and I hope that this does well for his sake. And then Wednesday, 9th of September, we don't have a time for this one yet, but ask the Baltings box office, How to Change the World. Yes, which is a documentary by Jerry Rothwell, who also made Deep Water, uh, about the formation of Greenpeace. Um, it follows the journey in 1971 of a young group of activists who sailed in a tiny little fishing boat from Vancouver to the island of Amchitka in Alaska to stop Richard Nixon's government doing atomic bomb tests there, and from that, Greenpeace sort of grew out. I think it is a little guilty of preaching to the converted in that if you are a fully paid-up Green Party member, you'll go and see this regardless. Um, but I think if you, are, if you do have some kind of interest in, in sort of environmental activism or just the politics of protest, I think it will prove a good watch for you. And then finally, at the Maltings, it's going to be a week on Saturday, 12th of September, 7.30, The Third Man. Yeah, now, I'm among a very select group of people who believe this to be one of the most overrated films ever made, I'm sorry to say. I don't hate it by any means. I'm a big fan of Orson Welles, and I love the expressionistic lighting during the climactic chase through the sewers. You know, the bits that people both remember I really like. The problem with The Third Man is that the rest of it is actually quite clumsy, particularly the way that the, the whole mystery of who The Third Man is is handled. Um, the other bits I really don't like about it are the fact that the Zither soundtrack, I know it's the iconic thing, but they don't sound good. They get very irritating. And you've also got Alida Vali in a supporting role, and Alida Vali spends the entire film just moaning about how brilliant Harry is, and you just end up wanting to walk out because she's so annoying. So... I think if you're an Orson Welles completist or you're a fan of Graham Greene's other work like Brighton Rock, then you'll go and see it. But otherwise, you're not missing out on too much. 
The Maltings box office number is 01289 330 Actually, talking about the Playhouse, Daniel, the uh, last uh, film I went to see there, which I thought was brilliant, uh, was Mr. Holmes. I really, really enjoyed that. Excellent. Because we discussed that the last time I was on air, I believe. Yes. Which, um, yeah. I suppose shows how long it's been. And, yeah. and I, I think I recommended it. So yeah. it's good. I'm glad that it, it's glad that it sort of fitted in. And, yeah. and not long now until the uh, the one-off Sherlock special yeah. arrives, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And the uh, the boy was superb. Brilliant actor. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. OK, to the top ten. And at number ten, this seems to have divided the critics somewhat. So let's see what Daniel makes of it. Minions. Now, are you a fan of the Despicable Me films? No. Okay. Um, I kind of like both of them. I thought the first one was was kind of generic but quite lighthearted and charming, and the second one was was actually a step up from that. And no, to a certain extent, giving the Minions their own spin-off film was kind of inevitable because they have become the most distinctive slash marketable part of the series. In terms of the film's plot, it's not in any way remarkable but again it's it's funny it's pretty sweet it's nothing brilliant you know it's not up there with with pixar or the very best of dreamworks when they were making the shrek series but if you've got young children it will do its job you know it's nothing particularly memorable or, or you know effective but it just it's it's a good disposable comedy and it looks quite nice right uh number nine is uh train wreck hmm. now, this is nothing like as funny as it thinks it is or as funny as it needs to be I, I quite like bill hader as an actor now he was the guy who was the lead in cloudy with a chance of meatballs about six years ago which is one of the weirdest children's films made in recent history if you've got young children show them that it's brilliant um the problem is that he's being teamed here with amy schumer who is a saturday night live alumnus no very much along the same lines of tina fey or amy poehler and she's far too broad and obvious to make a convincing character and it very quickly descends into a series of sketches rather than a coherent story. Again, the other problem is that you've got Judd Apatow as the director, and Judd Apatow is the guy who started off making things like Knocked Up and the 40-year-old virgin, you know, the, the bromance genre. And despite the fact that he's got a female lead, it's still a deeply chauvinistic and retrograde piece of work about monogamy and female responsibility. And oh, men never do this sort of thing. I can't be doing with any of that stuff, I'm sorry. Okay, number eight, a British comedy for a change, and it's uh, the Bad Education movie. Yeah, um, again, I didn't see the original Bad Education TV series. I don't know if it's something that you are a particular fan of. Uh, yes, I am actually. Yes, it was. It was good. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, it might just—it might simply be one of these situations where if you've not seen the TV series, you're not primed for the kind of humour or character dynamic. I mean, I'm just not a really big fan of Jack Whitehall. Coming at it from the cold, as it is, I think the film has about enough plot in it for 20 minutes, and then it completely runs out of steam. It's directed by Elliot Hegarty, who is a TV director. He, you know, he directed episodes of Trophy Wife in America, which, again, I wasn't really a fan of. You know, it's not terrible, but if you put it up against the in-betweeners films, then it kind of shows up for how sort of creaky it is, at least from a structural point of view. Number seven film interests me, The Griswolds Back Again, Invocation. Yeah, now I was never really a fan of the Griswold contingent of the National Lampoon films. I, I, I'm not a Chevy Chase fan at all. I, I think that the National Lampoon series was at their best when they were 
sort of starting out with Animal House and uh, that kind of really rebellious stuff that Landis was doing because that yeah. was actually countercultural. And Animal House was always the best of the lot, wasn't it? It is. I mean, arguably, it's the only one that's actually stood the test of time. I mean, you look at Christmas Vacation, for instance, which always gets shown in the next few months, and it just it's still quite ropey and rubbish. And, you know, I've, I've never been a fan of Ed Helm, but I find him just in the same way as Will Ferrell. He spends his entire routine just sort of gurning and looking at the camera as if to say, I'm brilliant, aren't I? To which we all go, no, you're not. You're just annoying. I think if you're a fan of the National Lampoon series, you know, you can get all the vacation on DVD or Blu-ray for less than 20 quid. And that would be a much better use of your time. Okay, now for anybody of a certain age, not your age, but probably nearer my age, who might remember Pac-Man from many years ago, uh, what's it doing as a movie? Pixels at number six. Yeah, well, I used to play Pac-Man when I was young. There was a there was a special pack of old Atari games that came with which came with Windows ninety five. So I didn't necessarily grow up with it, but I have fond memories of, of Pac-Man and Space Invaders. Thank you very much. Um, it's rubbish, and the very presence of Adam Sandler in it should sort of tell you so. I mean, if you remember Battleship a couple of years ago, which basically tried to make a film out of that board game and also tried to make it a sort of uh, would-be Transformers but failed terribly, if you took that film and remade it on land with slightly brighter colors, you'd end up with this. I mean, it's the same idea of of aliens inspired by video games that come from outer space and attack Earth, and we have to fight them off. I mean... The games are so much more fun and, to be honest, have much more plot than anything in this. Right. On to uh, number five, and this one is in Annick, a week on Friday. Um, mixed opinions uh, from my, uh, my, my home community on this one, because all women only ever used to like the man for uncle because of David McCallum as Ilya Kuryakin, which somehow left me cold. But all men used to like the toys because they had better toys on the man from uncle than anything else that was on television at the time. It feels an awfully long time since it was a TV series. Iconic as it was, so what do you make of it? Well, I, I have kind of loose memories of the TV series, though my familiarity with it is mainly with Robert Vaughan as a result of seeing him in The Magnificent Seven and then wanting to see him in everything else. Yeah. Um, it's, it's helmed by Guy Ritchie, and like you say, based on the, the iconic TV series from the 1960s, the story in this case follows an American agent and a Russian spy who have to team up to stop a mysterious organization which wants stabilized the world and it's you know, very much in that cold Smirsh, world wasn't it yes yes very much so i mean i i'm not as huge a fan of the series as you were i mean it's very much a product of its time in the same way as a lot of the early bond films certainly in terms of their gender politics a problem a product of their time you know i was re-watching goldfinger and a little bit of that the other day and that scene at the beginning with with dink and the whole man talk routine and you show that now and you just think how did you get away with that and it's, you know, The Man from Uncle doesn't have any of those kind of problems in terms of its sexual politics. I mean, the problem with this is that, unlike the Sherlock Holmes films, where Guy Ritchie could basically take a load of really well-worn material and do something quite inventive with it in terms of all the slow motion and being very tongue-in-cheek, here he's being very deliberately faithful, as if he doesn't want to offend the fan base. And as a result, it doesn't really convince as to why we need a film on top of the series. And you know, if you want, to, if you're a fan of the series, go and rewatch it again. It's on box set. You know, it has that same nostalgic charm as the original Mission Impossible TV series, which we'll get to in a second. I just don't think it's Guy Ritchie's best work, and I don't think it's going to hold up, you know, compared to the TV series all that well. Well, we're all now on tenterhooks to go and see what it's like. So, uh, yes, 
So if you wonder, everybody's wondering why I've been wittering on about open channel D. That was, of course, the way that um, Kiriakin and the other one used to talk to, talk to, uh, to home base. Yeah, I didn't actually get that reference, but well played. Yes. Right, to um, to number four, Tom Cruise is back, um, obviously being in the gym, uh, with Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Now, I remember reviewing the last Mission Impossible film with you, which I think was called Ghost Protocol, and I, I said that I was you know, sort of in two minds about it. And it's very interesting for me that a series which started off under the auteur Brian De Palma, albeit in, it not being one of his better works, has become the kind of embodiment of generic blockbuster one-on-one. You know, I think the comment I made at the time was that the series has become Tom Cruise's pension plan in that whenever he can't get work elsewhere, that's what he comes back to do. And clearly he's become indelibly associated with the role of Ethan Hans, and he enjoys throwing himself off buildings and out of airplanes. I mean, frankly, in his position, who wouldn't? I just don't think it's remarkable enough to warrant spending your money when Spectre is only just round the corner. So I would save your money for when Bond arrives. Fair enough. Um, actually, it's interesting. That got a certificate PG for brief partial nudity. It's like, well, what? it's Tom Cruise. What else are you going to get? Anyway, number three, Sinister 2. Which is awful. Not scary, not remotely original, poorly scripted, poorly shot. No more, please. All right, fair enough. I think you're probably going to be a little happier with number two, Inside Out. Yes, it's Pixar really back on form after that sort of shaky period after... Remember after the release of Brave in around 2012, which slightly underperformed at the box office, and then there was that real couple of years when people felt that the, the halo had really slipped. You know, Cars 2 did pretty good business but was slammed by critics. There were stories of people leaving the company because of management issues, releases like The Good Dinosaur being pushed back because of, you no know, again, staff issues. I mean, and this is just very much them turning around and saying, we've still got it, and why did you ever doubt us? I think in terms of the central idea, if you remember the days when the Beano existed and the, the comic strip in that, the numbskulls, which had little people operating thoughts and so forth inside someone's head, you'll kind of be familiar with the idea of that, of that sort of going in. Um, but in any case, this is a fantastic look at adolescence from the, from the inside out, hence the title. The visuals are absolutely gorgeous. Um, the voice talent's very good. You know, Bill Hader, again, sort of you know, demonstrating his chops. I think he's actually better as a voice artist than as a physical actor, but that's you know, something he'll develop. And there are a lot of good ideas in it. So you know, if you're wanting a family out into the cinema, this is the thing you have to see. OK, and then finally at number one, it's uh, Paper Towns. Yes. Um, it's the latest from Jake Scryer, who made that um, really odd little film called Robot and Frank with Frank Langella of... Uh, few years ago now, which was sort of floating around the Oscar attention. Um, it's based on the book by John Green, who also wrote The Fault in Our Stars, which was a kind of big-ish indie hit around this time last year. Um, that was a story about two people who have um, you know, terminal cancer diagnosis, finding themselves in a teen romance. This time you've got two teen neighbors, uh, Quentin, played by Matt Wolf, and Margot, played by model uh, Cara Delevingne. Uh, the latter goes missing, and he has to track her down. And it's it's very consciously made for teenagers. It's not a target audience thing for either you or me. And it is very much an indie sensibility film, which is a polite way of saying nothing much happens. You know, if you're 10 years younger than me, you'll probably get quite a bit out of it in terms of sort of feeling alienated and lost in the world. And it deals with the whole idea of teenagers trying to find their identity in a world which doesn't really make sense to them. For me, I feel like I'd seen a lot of it before and it was a bit too slow, but if you're, like I say, 17 or younger, you may think very differently. 
So, some recommendations, Daniel, because I think it's a bit of a mixed bunch, isn't it? Well, I think Inside Out for definite, because you know, we should support Pixar whenever they're doing really good, because yeah. if, without them, the animation scene would just be a lot more dull. I would give The Man from Uncle a chance if you have very fond memories of the TV series, but I'm not sure it's going to serve the casual fans too well. And if you're not uh, too big on Pixar, then Minions will do fine as kind of disposable kiddie fair. Right, so have a look at the um, some of the new releases. Uh, one that's described as uh, a film that fails to clear the low bar set by its predecessor, forsaking thrilling action in favour of a sleeky, hollow melange of dull violence and product placement. That's a really good setup for whatever you might want to say about Hitman Agent 47. Well, I, I really couldn't have put it better myself. So Rotten Tomatoes have kind of stolen my thunder there, but I'll do my best. Um, so it's the second film based on the Hitman series of video games, which I'll say from the outset I've never played. So if you're a video game fan, I apologize if I offend you for getting anything wrong. Apparently, this has nothing to do whatsoever with the 2007 film called Hitman, which was based on the same series. It's the debut directorial effort for Alexander Bark, and the story is you have a series of genetically engineered super assassins. The lead character is called Agent 47. He's played by a Rupert Friend, and he goes around doing loads of missions and getting into various gunfights with people who want him stopped and ultimately killed. Um, Notwithstanding the usual complaints about video game adaptations, you know, the big problem between, the big difference, I should say, rather, between video games and cinema is that video games don't have a story. And therefore, you have to create the story by driving the characters. It's an active experience, whereas cinema, you let the characters, you know, you take in what the characters are doing on screen and therefore form your own ideas about it. So notwithstanding all the usual complaints in that there's no real story, there's no real characters, and it looks pretty naff. You know, it's it's massively derivative. I mean, it takes that whole basic idea of, you know, the assassin trying to find out about his past and being caught in this, this wicked web that they weave when we practice to deceive. You look at any of the Bourne films, and even the Bourne legacy, which was a bit undercooked, frankly, and that takes that idea so much more interestingly, and it does it with a great deal more substance. You know, there's real political intrigue, real emotional drama, real character development. So don't waste your money on this. Just go back, watch the first three Bourne films back-to-back, and that will be a fantastic afternoon compared to sitting in a dark room for two hours getting bored to death by those. There you are. Actually, talking about the Bourne films, I've been reading some of the uh, the later books, the you know, post the initial trilogy books, and uh, they are some brilliant books. They'll make great films when they get around to doing them. Yes, there are there are rumours that Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass are talking about doing another film together, which yeah. I would definitely pay to see. He really will have to go on a diet. Um, okay, then uh, the Lazarus Effect, next one. Okay, so it's um, it's a horror film directed by uh, Lance Bangs and David Gelb, uh, which is rated PG thirteen in America. It's equivalent to twelve over here, so that doesn't really fill you with much. Uh, it's from the same production house that made The Purge, Insidious, and Sinister. And the story is you have a couple of researchers led by uh, Frank, played by Mark Duplass, and Zoe, played by Olivia Wilde, who have managed to bring the dead back to life. And uh, there are people trying to shut their experiments down, and the experiment gets out of hand, and you're already thinking of Frankenstein even before I've finished my sentence. Um, it's massively derivative, again. I mean, even without... You know, the Frankenstein reference, um, you've got things like um, Vincent Natale's 
uh, Splice, which was a few years ago, which was Adrian Brody's you know, really best performance since The Pianist. I thought he was very good in that. Or equally, the thing that I mistook this for when I was preparing this, there's that Doctor Who experiment, uh, episode called The Lazarus Experiment, where Mark Gatiss turns into a massive monster. By oh, I remember that, you know, yeah. yeah. By trying to accelerate human genetic evolution and all that. And, and you know, there were a lot of problems with that episode, but it was much better written and more interesting than anything in this. Also, bear in mind, I don't know if you've seen the trailer for this already, but there's another Frankenstein film called Victor Frankenstein coming out with Daniel Radcliffe and Andrew Scott, which looks absolutely bonkers. So I would save your money and wait for that, or go back and watch Kenneth Branagh's take on Frankenstein, which is still one of the most faithful versions of the book. Okay, to an animation now, uh, Strange Magic. Yes, Strange Magic, which uh, comes to us from Gary Rydstrom. It's an independent studio animation with a little bit of help from Lucasfilm's Cinepore division and Industrial Light and Magic, um, supposedly inspired by A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it's a madcap fairy tale musical with goblins and elves and fairies and magic potions starring Alan Cumming as the Bog King and uh, Kristen Chenoweth as the Sugar Plum Fairy. Um, there's a fantastic little film um, made about 14 years ago called Get Over It, which restages A Midsummer Night's Dream as a high school drama in which they're staging Shakespeare within a kind of teen drama. It's got a very good performance in it by Kirsten Dunst just before she was in the original Spider-Man film. You know, if you, you know, for historical purposes, she's very good in that. And the thing about that film was that it took Shakespeare, played quite fast and loose with it, but got the basic beats down in a way that would interest you in sort of wanting to find out more about the Bard. This, on the other hand, is much more like the Ewoks Christmas special, in that it's very kind of shiny and well-animated, but there's nothing going on between its ears. I'm really sad that Alan Cumming's been reduced to doing this, and bear in mind, this is the guy who did Son of the Mask now 10 years ago, and you don't get much lower than that. So it, it's just not very well put together and not worth your time and effort. Okay, uh, some of the pictures do look quite stunning, so uh, do it without the sound on, basically, isn't it? Um, we Are Your Friends is the next one. Yes, which is a more independently spirited effort, directed by Max Joseph, and uh, the story follows uh, an aspirational 23-year-old DJ called Cole, who's trying to make his way on the Hollywood nightlife and taking his first steps into the world of the electronic music. He befriends uh, a charismatic but damaged DJ called James, who sort of becomes his mentor, and from then you have a kind of unspooling of their friendship and he having to choose between uh, you know, where his loyalties lie and who he truly loves and what his destiny is. You know, it's got a fantastic soundtrack, I'll say that. So the first one, the, the choice of music is really, really good. You know, we mentioned Quentin Tarantino when we played uh, that uh, song from Jackie Brown's soundtrack, and you know, it's not quite up there with his knack for choosing music, but it does know how to put music and images together in a way that is evocative. And, you know, that's, that's one thing that's always good to see in a film. I think it's, you know, it's very independently spirited, again, that it's, it is quite slow and a little bit too plodding for its own good. It's sort of, they'll have a little sort of intimate drama scene and then you'll get a burst of electronic music, you'll think the plot will speed up a little bit and then it'll go down. The thing that this reminded me most of, there's a, an, un, a little scene film from the late 80s, I think, called Studio 54, uh, about the, the nightclub of the same name, which had a very, very good performance by Mike Myers as the, the head of the nightclub. And you know, I would recommend seeing this if you're a fan of electronic music and you want to learn about the history of the Hollywood scene in that. But I would also recommend checking out Studio 54. It's not a great film, 
But there are, for every second that Mike Myers is on screen doing something completely different from anything of his Austin Powers, Saturday Night Live, Wayne's World shtick, that is worth checking out just to see how good he really can be when he's got his got a part that he can get his teeth into. Okay, the final film we're going to look at this week, um, and I have to say it's got Certificate R in the US, and it doesn't look the easiest of material, uh, but looks really quite interesting, is Straight Outta Compton. Yes, which is a, a, a dramatized version of the history of uh, rappers uh, who came out of California, specifically Compton in California, in the mid to late 80s. Uh, Paul Giamatti has a supporting role as Jerry Heller. You've got Corey Hawkins playing Dr. Dre, who many people will know for his work with Eminem. I will say from the first out that what I know about hip-hop and rap, we could barely sit on a grain of rice. So again, I apologize um, if I sort of offend people. But basically, you have a, a two-and-a-half-hour film which looks over a 10-year period at that sort of extended soap opera of all those rappers who came out of one particular place and basically changed the face of that particular genre of music. Um, directed by a girl called F. Gary Gray, who uh, also on his directorial roster uh, has the remake of The Italian Job, which I was not that keen on. Uh, but what he does here that's very clever is that he manages to take what could be just a really, you know, inward-looking melodrama and actually explains why the music is so groundbreaking and why these people were so influential. Um, it's very easy when you're making a film about somebody who's so famous, whether it's you know, Notorious B.I.G. or Muhammad Ali, you know, mentioning sort of Michael Mann's film earlier in the program, to just sort of just portray the reputation rather than getting under the skin. And in fact, the film Notorious, which was released, I think, in 2007, it, the problem with that was that it was just preaching to the converted and didn't explain to someone like me who knows nothing about rap and hip-hop why this guy was so significant and important in the music scene. This, on the other hand, it is a long haul and there are tough moments, but if you are completely unfamiliar with the music, you'll come out of it thinking, well, I might not understand everything, but I do get a little bit more as to why these people have become such, such kind of milestones in our culture. And it does make me want to find out more about it. So if you're a music fan, obviously you'll lap it up. But if you are you know, a casual listener, if you've only heard the names of Dr. Dre and Tupac and so forth, just banded around, you will get a lot out of this. Right. There are warnings, strong language, strong sexuality, nudity, violence, drug use, everything in two and a half hours, eh? I dare say it will be an 18 over here if it's an R in yeah. America. And you know, yeah. you know what you're going to be expecting with that Indeed. kind of story. So yeah. you know, go prepared. So a real mixed bag this week. The Probably the poorer end of mixed bag. Recommendations? Well, Straight Outta Compton is the film of the week. Um, like I say, because it's better than Notorious in explaining the music. If you're not 18 and therefore you can't see it legally... Um, I suppose the only other one would be We Are Your Friends. You know, it's not Studio 54, but it will pass the time perfectly fine. Um, and otherwise, there's plenty of stuff in the top 10 that's still available for those under the age of 18. And you can check those out at your whim.